Lord, you are so gracious, and we thank you for the wonderful, beautiful, and powerful name of Jesus. It is wonderful, Lord, because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is beautiful because it is the name that gives us access to the God of the universe. And it is powerful. Not only does the name of Jesus and what he's done for us have the power to save us, but there is such great power in that name that we can claim the name of Christ in any situation and know that you will be with us. Thank you, Father, for our time in your word today. I pray that your spirit would guide and teach us. I pray that your word would be illuminated to us and that we would leave today having drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we saw Jesus eating with Simon the Pharisee and we saw a woman who was uh, probably a prostitute who came in with repentance and faith worshiping Jesus. This week we're going to talk about ministry. First we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus, then the ministry of the twelve, and then the women who were involved in Jesus' ministry. So before I move forward a little bit, there's still more to the introduction, let's read these three verses so you can see a little bit of where I'm coming from. Now it came to pass afterward, so this was after the meal with Simon the Pharisee, that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Achusa, and Herod Steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now you might be thinking, really? Five pages? Oh yeah. So the definition of ministry is simple. It means carrying out the tasks of a minister. That made things clear, right? Ministry is carrying out the tasks of a minister. It's like, well, what is a doctor? Well, a doctor is one who does doctor stuff. You know, what, what, what about an accountant? Well, an accountant does accounting. The minister, what does a minister do? Or what is the definition of ministry? Well, you minister. Thanks. So then we really have to ask the question, what's a minister? The word for minister throughout the New Testament is diakonos, or diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon, and it means to be a servant. Everybody says, oh, well, you're the minister. No, I'm one of them. We are all called to that, but I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. We are all called, actually, to be servants. Jesus, in speaking with his disciples, asked, what was it? that you disputed among yourselves on the road. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9, 33-35 To be a servant of all is to put the needs of others ahead of your own. Philippians 3, 2-5 describes this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the rest of that passage goes on to show the humility and service of our Savior. So as I oft, often happens, I'll, I'm sitting in my office and working on a message. And um, they don't always, I, I very rarely use a lot of quotes from people in my messages. You all should know that for the most part. Um, but every now and then, but I, I look up quotes on a fairly regular basis. I usually just don't find something that I actually want to use. Um, this week I found two quotes that I thought were fun. One is in regards to ministry of the church as a whole. I really like this quote. The church is like manure. Pile it up and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. So now anybody go home. You know what the pastor called us this morning? Yes, I did. But I'm part of the church too, folks. I'm the stinkiest pile among all of us, I promise. Uh, that was from Luis Palau. This, this uh, quote is from a guy named Stuart Briscoe. Qualifications of a pastor include the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. Verse 1. Came to pass afterward that he, speaking of Jesus, went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. We have seen throughout the book of Luke so far what Jesus' ministry looked like. It was and still is a ministry of compassion and mercy and love, miraculous healing, teaching, and living as a perfect example for all of us. Here, we focus on preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom. So I want to do a little defining here for you, the difference between preaching and teaching. The word for preach in Greek is Caruso. Uh, some of you may remember this. Anybody remember the Caruso clothing brand from back in the 90s, early 2000s? You could go to Mardell Christian. Anybody ever been to a Mardell Christian bookstore? The greatest store on earth. The store that my wife would hold my hand in while we walked through it. The hand that would reach for my wallet, particularly. Loved me some Mardell. Uh, they used to sell a lot of their stuff. But Caruso means to herald or proclaim the truth of God, particularly the gospel. Preaching. Teaching is the word didasko or didaki. Y'all know how good I pronounce Greek words. Now this word means to teach or instruct for the purpose of learning doctrine. It's different. Right? When you're preaching, your goal is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, hoping that the person who hears comes to faith. Teaching is instruction for learning. Now my goal, according to Ephesians chapter 4, right? this isn't my goal, this is the goal that I've been given in Scripture, is to equip you for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's my job. So I often spend more time teaching than I do preaching. Now, every week I preach the gospel, and I told you, if there's ever a week that comes when I don't preach the gospel, feel free to hand me my walking papers. Because if I ain't telling people about Jesus, I shouldn't be doing anything. 
So sometimes I preach too. Sometimes I get really excited and get confused. But I'm going to give you a little insight as to why. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. This verse, which was an exhortation to Timothy, who was a young pastor, is one of several verses that are the basis for why I do things the way I do. I've had people ask me this question throughout the years I've been a pastor, because I've always done it the same way. I've never been the series guy, and I got nothing against the series as it were. Um, I'm just not a series guy. Even when we get to, you know, Christmas and Easter, I don't like doing a series. Let's open our Bibles to this place. We'll read a few chapters over the next few weeks and study them as we lead up to whatever event, because I just, I just don't do very well with the series it makes it easy for me last week we ended on on uh, what was it luke 750 this week we started on luke 8 1 <laughs> right all the thinking is taking right out of that decision as far as what i do next but this is what paul told pastors to do read the word exhort the church teach them doctrine that's why i do what i do now, somebody may come back to me, well, why didn't you ever talk about this topic? Well, I have talked about that topic. When we were there, and when we were there, and when we were there, I have talked about that topic. Oh, yeah, but couldn't you just do a special message? And I have. You know that. I've done some special messages from time to time. Um, oh, and I've, I've, I've heard it all. Oh, you know, if you, just, if you would just get your message down to 30 minutes, make three simple points, and give somebody something to go home with, and I've looked back at that person I'm like, this is not the church for you. That's not me. It ain't never going to be me. If I ever finish a sermon in less than 30 minutes, make sure I'm okay. Something is probably wrong. There's a few other verses that have dictated uh, for the last 18 plus years why I do things the way I do. One of them is Nehemiah 8.8. 8. Um, one of them is Acts 20, verse 27. I mentioned Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, and a few others. But it's very simple. I want to do things the way the Bible tells us to do things. And somebody might say, well, this way is more effective. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Well, good for you. If that's what's working for you, that's, that's not what I do. You can do whatever the most popular pastor on TV tells you to do. I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. Oh, that hurt, didn't it? A little bit, sorry. I was wrong. I didn't mention any names yet. I mean, <clears throat> but what was his message? So throughout the, the scriptures, or throughout the Gospels especially, we see Jesus doing both. We see him teaching for the point of instructing and doctrine, and we see him preaching, which is what that phrase is right there, as he went to every city and village preaching, bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. That word there for bringing um, the glad tidings is euangelizo. Sound familiar? In English, it's evangelism. That's where we get our word, evangelism. It means to announce or declare the good news, and specifically in a biblical context, to announce or declare the good news of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Most of us should be able to give a fairly apt description 
of what the gospel is. You can start with the simple beauty of the gospel. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to know all the scriptures. You don't have to be able to expound upon the intricacies of soteriology. Uh, that's a fancy word that means the doctrine of salvation. You don't have to do that. You have to know what you need to do to share the gospel. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed and the fairy says, we want to know what happened to you. And he said, I was blind. Now I see. It's that simple. One of my favorite scenes in the first season of The Chosen, and I know people have different thoughts about The Chosen, and that's okay. As long as you take it as a TV show and you read your Bible to know how it actually happened, The Chosen is a great show. But there's one scene with Mary Magdalene, who is mentioned here, um, where Nicodemus comes up to her and he said, what happened? And she said, I was one way. And now I'm different. And the only thing that happened was him. That's a testimony, folks. That's sharing the gospel with people. So maybe you don't know all the right words. Maybe you can't quote all the right scriptures. Who cares if you went to Bible college or have a seminary degree or anything of the sort? You can go to people and you go, this is what I know. Jesus loves me. He died on the cross for my sins. And once I came to know him, I've never been the same. I rose, right? You can go deeper. Talk about his sinless life, his atoning sacrifice, his triumphant resurrection. You can talk about sin. You can talk about repentance. But however you do it, the point is that you do it. Evangelizing the world is not up to pastors, missionaries, and stadium preachers. It is for all of us. It's why we are exhorted in 2 Timothy 4.5 to do the work of an evangelist. Not everybody is called and gifted to be an evangelist. And that's okay. But everybody is called to do the work of an evangelist. You don't have to have a specific title in order to share the gospel with people. And in all reality, it's better if you don't. A couple weeks ago, I brought up a statistic. I looked it all up again and I put it in here because I wanted to share this with you. So when I say it would actually be more effective for you to share the gospel when you don't have a title, then with me, that's where this statistic comes in. Is it behind me yet? Here's how people start coming to church. Advertising, 2%. 2%. Churches throughout the world spend millions of dollars on advertising. It doesn't work. I should have put each of these statistics on a different slide. It would have been more of a build-up and a little more suspense. But advertising's meaningless. We were at a church once. <laughs> I love this story. We were at a church once and we had VBS, right? All churches, in all churches, we, we do VBS with a church across town, dear brother of mine. Um, but we, we, um, we do, with this, like all churches, that church, we did VBS. And we had a fence that ran along the highway where the church sat, um, the church was actually much closer to the road than we are. And so we had this fence. And we had this big sign. I don't know what it was, 12 feet long, 6 feet. It, was, it took like three people to put it up. It was a big sign. VBS! Written across the sign. And so this is one of those churches that had business meetings. And for those of you who know me well, you know how well business meetings went. Uh, and we were sitting there. And one of the people in the church... We were talking about VBS, and over the previous couple of years, we'd had about 25, 30 kids at VBS every year. It wasn't a bad 
showing. And he goes, well, we should have 50 or 60 kids at BBS. I'm like, um, great. What, what do you think we should do to get that many kids? We need another sign. I'm like, the 80-foot sign, it's okay, it wasn't that, but the, the sign that's out there is not big enough. We need more. I said, all right, I'll tell you what. If the church approves it, I'll go buy 20 signs and I'll p- plaster them up and down the highway because I'm a little sarcastic. And he looked, well, I, I wasn't suggesting that. I'm like, a sign doesn't make any difference. You want to know how people are going to come? You, go get them. He didn't like that answer. Number two, organized visitation. I have heard this from several pastors here in town in Gunnison that uh, they have gone around door to door. And good for them. They're making an effort. A couple weeks ago, we heard, uh, we heard this told by uh, Rich Townsend. And he talked about when he lived here in Gunnison that they just about went to every single door in Gunnison. Shared the gospel, gave them a tract, gave them a Bible, invited them to church. Do you know how many people came as a result of that? Knocking on hundreds and hundreds of doors. Not one. I have another pastor friend who's on the outskirts of town. And uh, he was talking about the same thing. And he was being criticized by one of his supporting churches. Well, why don't you just go door to door? And he said, I have. Well, you must not have gone door to door. You'd have more people in the church. He goes, I have. So finally, because he's a little bit like me, he said, fine, you come here and knock on the doors and see what happens. The the guy didn't take him up on his offer. And why is that? Organized visitation, 6%. 6%. All right, it's a little better than advertising. That's fair. But the time and effort that goes into that for the yield, now don't get me wrong, if you go knock on someone's door and you share the gospel and they get saved, that is one million percent worth it. Absolutely. It's the same reason we go down and do Halloween. It's the same reason we're out there uh, on Christmas for the Night of Lights. It's the reason we do that. Yeah, we don't get people coming. People throw away our invitations. I pick them up off the ground after they visited our table. But if just one, just one, here's the gospel and actually pays attention to it. It's worth it. That's why we do it. The third way, invited by a pastor. Right? A pastor? Well, you're the pastor. If you invite people to church, they're going to come. No, they're not. 6%. Just like organized visitation. 6%. Now think about that. I actually think it's much lower than that in Gunnison. Uh, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of people I've invited to church. I don't see them. And of those hundreds, I've maybe had two or three people come to church because of my invitation. Maybe. Invited by a friend. 86%. 86 percent it is not my job to reach the lost in our city it is my job to equip you to reach the lost in our city ephesians 4 11 and 12 is where that comes from god gave to the church apostles evangelists um 
Goodness gracious. Don't you hate it when your memory fails? He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, if your gift is evangelism, then that's your gift. But my job as a pastor teacher is to equip you to go out there. Now, I will always invite people to church. I will always share the gospel with anyone God gives me the chance to share with. However, if my math is correct, and I checked with my wife, people are 14 times more likely to come to church if you invite them than if I do. 14 times. If I were to go to the people you know and invite them to church, there is a 94% chance that they would reject me. If you go to those people, there's a 14% chance they'll reject you. Big difference, isn't it? I've had people say, oh, you need to, I need you to come over and I need you to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. And I'll look back at them and I'll say, I'll come over. I said, but you need to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. You tell your neighbor that you invited your pastor over to talk to them about Jesus, they are going to shut down and refuse to listen. Period. If we want to see the lost one to Christ, which as followers of Christ is what we should all want, then we must be doing what Jesus did, which is to go about bringing the glad tidings of the gospel. But I want you to notice, he did not do it alone. Verse One, we read all the way up to the first period. Now we're going to read up to the next comma. And the twelve were with him. Seems like kind of an innocuous statement, doesn't it? And the twelve were with him, right? Oh, Jesus went about doing all this and the twelve were with him. The twelve were there. We actually know it was a lot more than that that followed him around, typically. Now Jesus spent a lot of time alone with his father because nobody can commune with God for you, right? I can pray for you. I can pray with you, but only you can spend time with God. I can't do that for you. It's like I tell my daughter all the time, I say, can you go exercise and it counts for me? If we could figure out a way to do that, we would be billionaires. Right? I go for a one-mile run and everybody who signs up on my app, that one-mile run counts for them as well. Right? For their heart health or whatever you want to do. We would be billionaires. We would be destroying Amazon and Tesla and space. We'd have it all. Because there'd be a lot of people that are like, well, I can just sit on my couch and that guy will go running for me and I get the benefits of it? Can't do that. So Jesus would often spend time alone with his father because nobody can read the word of God and pray for you. You have to do that part. Jesus went to the cross alone because he was the only sinless sacrifice who could save us from death and condemnation from our sin. However, beside these things, Jesus did everything with the twelve. At times, it would only be three of them. He would often take James and John and Peter, like when he raised Jairus' daughter, Mount of Transfiguration. Those are a couple examples. But it was always at least three. He never did it alone. When he sent out his disciples, he sent them out in pairs. 
when he sent out the 12, when he sent out the 70, he didn't tell them to go by themselves. He sent them out in pairs. When you go through the book of Acts, you see the same thing. When Paul went on a missionary journey, or anyone else for that matter, there were always at least two people, often more. Paul and Barnabas, and then Barnabas went with Mark, and Paul went with Silas. And later on, you read that as Paul was traveling, not only did he have Silas, he also had uh, uh, Luke, and at times he had other people like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Aristarchus, and you guys don't know if I'm right or not. I'm just guessing. <laughs> no, I know some of these names are in there. You're like, wow, he know. I'm just throwing out Bible names, and Hezekiah, and, and David was there, and Gideon, and no, I'm joking, clearly joking. But they never went alone. Never went alone. Do you remember when, uh, um, I believe his name was Cornelius, called for Peter. Right? He sent a delegation down. Peter was at Simon the Tanner's house. This is all up in Acts chapter 10, I think. And he said, I, I had a vision, and you need to come to me and explain this to me. And Peter told the guys, well, stay the night. We'll go tomorrow. And the next day he went, and he took multiple other believers with him. And when that came back, and Peter was testifying about that event before the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Peter said all of this. Now, this is Peter the apostle. He's talking to the others that followed along with Jesus with him. And he's like, this is what happened. But then he called on those who were with him, and they gave testimony to the events. And the rest of the apostles went, well, great. If God's going to do that among the Gentiles, awesome. Right? That's the message Bible. But that's essentially what happened. Because they weren't alone. I think I've made my point. Why? Ministry has never been meant to be done alone. I want you to flip with me real quick up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in Luke, then there's John, then there's Acts, and then there's Romans, and then there's 1 Corinthians. And then I flipped all the way to Galatians. I was real smart there when I... 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have the right Bible, it's on page 1436. I'm joking. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're just going to pick up in verse 12. We're going to read through some of this pretty quick. I just want you to see what the Bible teaches us. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members... Of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing where would be the smelling but now god has set the members each one of them in the body just as he pleased but if they were all one member where would the body be but now indeed there are many members yet one body and the eye cannot say to the hand i don't need you nor again the head to the feet i have no need of you no rather much those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. 
But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or disunity in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And then he gets into the ministry gifts again. That is so, so vital. And I've always loved the description there, and I use the same illustration every time, and I'm okay with it because it's a good one. When we think about the body of Christ, when we think about the church, when we think about ministry, when we think about the way God has arranged things, people get this idea that it's my job. And it's just not. Doesn't mean I don't have my role to play, but it's not my job. Well, everybody sees you. Yeah, and according to this, it's the less noticeable members that have the greater honor. This is the illustration. How many of you wake up every morning and your first thought is your pinky toe? Anybody? Oh, I wake up, praise you, Father. And now I'm Scottish. No, I'm still Irish. Which one is that? Praise you, Father, in front of me, pinky toe. Oh, I couldn't get out of bed without it. No, you can't get out of bed without your big toe, right? Your big toe is part of balance. Your pinky toe does nothing. It doesn't even look good, right? You think about things, right? The ears, the ears have a function. The nose has a function. Everything pretty much has a function. You've got this spot on your back. Well, who needs that? That's like your pinky toe. What's the point of it? If you had all four of your other toes cut off, it would hurt, but you don't need them. Now, that pinky toe seems completely unimportant until you have to pee at 2 in the morning and you find the corner of a bookshelf. All of a sudden, that stupid little appendage is the most important part of your body. And you hop around and you praise God for that pinky toe once more. But that's the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 24 through 25 says, Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are commanded here to be part of a church, to meet as part of a church, and that when we are here to stir one another up, to stir one another up in the gifts that God has given us and the calling that God has given us to encourage each other, to help each other grow When one member suffers, we all suffer together. And so we hold that member up. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice together. Because that's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So if you speak, speak as the oracle of God. If you serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter basically tells us, if you're part of the body, then God has given you grace to serve. Use it. Period. So then, man, I had fun this week. I don't know if you can tell yet. I was thinking about what are some things that people think about ministry that aren't true. So I came across this article on Outreach Magazine. Eight 
myths about ministry that unfortunately way too many people think are true. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Oh, I got time. Number one, church leadership and ministry are reserved for a few highly and deeply spiritual teachers. I actually had an idea that I needed to get a game show buzzer in here with me. Eh. No, it's not. If you think church leadership and ministry are reserved for a few highly gifted and deeply spiritual people, you have not met me. I love the Lord with all my heart, and I am trying my very best to grow in Christ. But there are plenty of days where I am not deeply spiritual. If you think I wander around in a monk's robe when you don't see me, right? I'm in the forest, and the little squirrels come up and rest on my arms as I commune with God. That is not what happens, folks. I wake up in the morning with drool on my pillow like everybody else. And I love Jesus. First thing I do every morning, there's only one thing that trumps my time with Jesus in the morning. I get a cup of coffee first. Because you've got to have your coffee. Right, but that, that's not necessary. You want to know who God wants? Someone who's available. How about ministry is predictable? I want you to hold on a minute while I laugh hysterically. Ministry is predictable. No, it's not. You could throw in there, ministry is easy, or ministry is enjoyable. Oh, did he just say ministry is not only always... No, it's not always enjoyable. Sometimes I hate my job. Sometimes I do. I love you all. And sometimes I don't want to see you. Is that a little too honest? It's just what it is. Just what it is. Right? I have had many occasions where it was supposed to be a day off and I get a phone call and I'm getting in the car and I'm gone. I got to go. Right? And you guys know what my days off are supposed to be. If you need something, I always answer the phone. I probably shouldn't, but I always do. I had one. I was actually gone for three days. It was, I, I won't tell the whole story, but I was gone. Called my wife that night. I'm like, I can't come home. Um, I have to stay here. Got a hotel room. And, and yeah, it was three days. Just in the middle of the week. Ministry is never predictable. Ministry can be finished or completed. Additional hysterical laughter. As long as we are here, right? Not necessarily in this building, but alive and on planet Earth. And as long as there are lost and hurting people in the world, our job is not done. It's not done. How about ministry is more effective based on church size? Now, if you're a pastor of a small church, like I am, I've heard pastors say, well, because my church is small, we have more intimate relationships and our ministry is more effective. Okay. Then I've heard pastors of big churches, well, our pastor, our church is huge and we have millions of dollars and because of that, a ministry of our church is more effective. Do you want to know what ministry is most effective? When you go tell somebody else about Jesus. I don't care the size of the church. doesn't matter. How about ministry always feels spiritual? This is number five. Ministry always, quote unquote, feels spiritual. Oh, well, if, if I go to church and I don't get the chills during the service, then it just wasn't a spiritual service. Here, it's probably because I left the windows open. Right? 
doesn't feel spiritual. Often ministry does not feel spiritual. It feels like work. Sometimes ministry is exhausting. Sometimes it's unrewarding. And what I mean by that is temporal rewards. Oh, I did this great thing for this person and now they're going to give me a big old thank you. No, they're not. They're not. Now, I'm storing up treasures in heaven and so are you. And one day I'm going to get the only thank you I need. Well done, good and faithful servant. At least I hope. My salvation is sure in Christ. The well done, good and faithful servant we're working on. So not necessarily temporary rewards. Some moments in ministry have brought me to tears and caused me to spiral into depression. Others have caused me such overwhelming joy that I could not communicate it. Sometimes it beats me down and I feel worse afterwards than when I did before. But I don't do this. We don't do this so we can feel good about ourselves. We do it to glorify God in our service to others. And I've talked to people, well, you know, I just, I don't want to be involved in that. It doesn't sound fun. Wow, hell's hot, brother. Doesn't necessarily mean you lose your salvation, but I'm feeling snarky today. What's that? Just a little, right? And for those of you who don't know me, I'm usually very calm and reserved. I've only had two cups of coffee. Ministry, number six, reaches more people when you offer more ministries. That is not true. It doesn't matter. It's actually harder to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Quality will always prevail over quantity. Ministry, oh, I love this one. Ministry or the pastor can solve all the problems that need to be solved. <laughs> Never. I've had people get mad at me. Well, why didn't you fix this? I can't fix it. <gasps> well, aren't you the pastor of the church? Yep. Well, then why didn't you deal with that? I tried. Can't help it if somebody doesn't listen, or I can't help it if it's a situation I can't fix. Just in case you're wondering, I'm not perfect. Nor am I God. Not even close. You should all be very thankful that I'm not God. The world would be a little different. Man, there'd be pickleball courts everywhere. Once a ministry is working, you can slow down and enjoy it. Nope. Ministry is just like our spiritual lives. If we are not moving forward, we're moving backward. Finally, the women, verse 2 and 3. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, we have Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod, Stuart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So here we see uh, three women that are named and others that are, are mentioned, right? We don't get their names, who were touched and healed by Jesus, like Mary Magdalene, who now participated in providing financial support from Jesus' ministry, from their substance or their possessions. There are two things about this. First, giving money is not a substitute for serving. Oh, Speaking of this, Jesus told the Pharisees when they were, he was talking about the difference between tithing and love and justice and mercy, the other parts of the law, he said in Luke eleven 42, we're going to get there in 
12 years. These you ought to have done without leaving the others done. Undone, sorry. These you ought to have done without leaving the others done. People get this idea, well, if I just give money to the church, then I don't have to do anything. Keep your money, show up and serve. Oh, I know. Don't pastors really want your money? Yes, we do. You want me to lie about it? We need money or the church closes and I don't eat. Um, But giving isn't a substitute for serving. It can never be. Second, I don't believe women are relegated to this or some other specific ministry. So now we're going to launch into the third message of the day. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I've gone through it before. There are two words when we talk about women in ministry, egalitarian and complementarian. Simply put, complementarianism stresses that although men and women are equal in personhood, you know, that we all have the same value before God, we're created for different roles. Egalitarianism also agrees that men and women are equal in personhood and holds that there are no gender-based limitations on the roles of men and women. I'm a little bit of both. And I'm going to tell you why. I am certainly a complementarian because the Bible makes it clear that men and women are created for different roles. For example, only a woman can be a mother. Now, if you pay too much attention to the news today, people are trying to tell you differently. But I'm sorry, only women can be mothers. And if, if, if you don't like that answer, really, your argument is with God because he's the one who made us. Only men can be fathers. No, I'm going to say that. No, I'm not saying that in public. Sorry. <laughs> Something popped into my head from a conversation we were having yesterday as a family, and it's, it's going to stay there. You should, you're welcome. Trust me. You're welcome. Men are to be the spiritual head of their homes and women are to submit to their husbands. Oh my gosh, he said it. Yes, I did. Men are to be the spiritual head of their homes. You want to know the problem? Most men don't have what it takes. They don't have the courage to stand up and be the men of their homes, to love their wives, to disciple their families, to protect them and care for them. But that doesn't mean we get to be dictators. I'm going to tell you straight up. I don't make decisions apart from my wife. I don't. I won't. I'm not that dumb. There was a time I was that dumb. It didn't work out very well. I don't make decisions without my wife. I just don't. So that's definitely the part of me that's complementarian. The part of me that egalitarian, it is egalitarian, and this makes some people very upset with me and I don't care. And that is that there are many churches that forbid women to participate in a number of things, saying, oh, that's unbiblical. Women, right, women can serve in children's ministry. Women should be in the kitchen making me whatever. Right? That's what women, women can clean the church. That's what women can do. Oh my gosh, what a load of garbage. Let's think of a few biblical examples. What about Deborah? I love Deborah. She was a prophetess. And when Barak, who was the judge of Israel at the time, was too afraid to go to battle, he came to Deborah. Deborah said, the Lord's saying you should go to battle. And Barak says, I can't do it. You've got to come with me. And Deborah looks at him, savage. She says, fine, I'll go with you. But then the world is going to know that God gave the victory through a woman and not you. And then she wrote a chapter of the Bible. Judges 4 and 5. 
I don't think Deborah was serving in children's ministry. What about Esther? She saved the entire Jewish nation. By God's grace and strength and help, she saved the entire nation. It's probably a good thing that she wasn't baking cookies that day. What about Ruth? Now, you go read the book of Ruth. Everything she did was well within the cultural confines of the time. But still, boldness to follow her mother-in-law back. Without Esther and Ruth, Israel wouldn't have a history. Without Ruth, we wouldn't have Jesus. Think about that. In the New Testament, we have a lot of fun women, like the women we just read about. Mary Magdalene, they were following him. I am sure they were praying with people. I'm sure they were loving on people. That's a guess. That's conjecture. But we do have Lydia in Acts 16. That's who our daughter's named after. What was Lydia doing? She was leading a prayer meeting down by the river because there weren't enough Jewish men in their town, which I think was Philippi, if I remember correctly, to actually have a synagogue. So she was there. And what did Paul do? He shared the gospel with her. She got saved. Then what happened? They started a church in her house. I really like Priscilla and Aquila. Two of my favorites. Uh, A wife and husband. Priscilla's the wife. Aquila's the husband. They were kicked out of Rome. They met Paul. And in Acts chapter 18, they met a man named Apollos who did not have a perfect understanding of the gospel. But he was doing his best to share what he knew. And when they found him, it says that they took him aside and explained to him the way more perfectly. Both Aquila and Priscilla were involved in discipling this man. That's just a few. It's just a few. There are many others. Galatians 3.8 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. People get this idea. Oh, men are better than women. What? a load of malarkey. You know my thoughts on that. Women are a lot better than men. 100 million percent. I was having a discussion with one of our, our church folks, uh, Andrew, talking about his, his wonderful wife who just, you know, they just had a baby. Oh, we forgot to do the second offering for that. We should do that. Um, I need more coffee. You guys ever think about what a woman's body can do? I mean, a woman's body can grow another person. Then, the woman's body has the ability to get that other person outside. And then, that woman's body goes back to the way it was. I mean, certainly changed, but come on. Really? You know what I can do? I can lift something that's kind of heavy i got to be careful so I don't hurt my back. I can't grow a human being. Women are amazing. And churches get this idea where we're just going to, you can serve in children's ministry, you can be quiet, you can stay over there. And that ain't right. There is one caveat, and this is where I always get in trouble, and like I said earlier, I don't care. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Great passage. Are you ready? All ladies, don't lynch me. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Men, I thought I'd get an amen, but the guys in here are smarter than that. (laughs) Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Oh, there's so much in there that has been so abused by a lot of men who are idiots. Women learning in silence. I like this statement. This is a reference to the fact that men and women used to sit apart. Culturally, that's what they did. And a lot of times, if they were in church, you ever been in church and you nudge your, your husband or wife and go, oh, I really like that, or oh, where was that verse? Or, right? Well, they would do that, but they would just say, hey, Bob, where, what did he say? Clearly, a distraction. This is my personal opinion. Other than a well-placed hallelujah or amen, everybody should shut up while the word is being taught. You guys have done really well today. Right? Nobody should be having separate conversations. The word of God is being taught. Whether it's me or anybody else, we should be listening. Then he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. And this is the one role the Bible is very clear about that must be held by a man. Very simply, that is my job. That of a ruling and teaching elder. Ruling. That's a funny word. But my job as the pastor of a church is reserved for a man. Now, some people don't like that. And they think women can be pastors too. Women should be senior pastors. The Bible says no. Your argument isn't with me. It's with God. And we're given a reason. Why? Because Eve was deceived. Now, that doesn't mean women are gullible and men are not. Come on, we know better than that. It's just the biblical reason that Paul gives. Eve was deceived and Paul was not. Then it says, a woman will be saved in childbearing. So does this mean that you have to have a baby in order to be saved? No, it is not what it means. We were talking about this earlier today uh, in Sunday school, that sometimes the English translations are, they just, they, they're bad. I love all the English Bibles we have, but sometimes the English translation is not good. The word for saved here in Greek is sozo. Where it can be translated saved, it is better translated as to deliver, protect, heal, do well, do well, sorry, or make whole. The word for childbearing here is technogonia. Sounds like an alien race in Star Trek. Oh, the technogonians are attacking. But it can also mean, it can mean to have a child, but it literally means to be maternal. That's what it literally means, to be maternal. And that means most women are very comfortable in the fact that they are created to care for other people. That's just it. That's why women are far more often teachers and nurses and, uh, you know, work in nursing homes and they do jobs where they can care for others. I'm not saying that only women can do jobs. In fact, men are commanded to do the same. Oh, how terrible. I'm about to say men should be maternal as well. We should do it in a manly way with, you know, beer and fire. But men are called to care for people the same way women are. But that's what it's talking about. It doesn't mean you have to have a baby in order to be saved. That's an insane and poor interpretation. What is it talking about? It's saying that women, just like men, should care for people. So this is what it means in the end. It means God created men and women completely equal, but for different roles in the family and the church. It does not mean, however, that one is better than the other, especially if we're talking about men because men are a big ball of mess most of the time. 
I believe women are much better. But women, and let's face it, men, are created to be carried... Uh, sorry. Wow, I read my own sentence wrong. So women and men are created to be caring and compassionate towards others. That doesn't mean that every woman has to be a mother. And it certainly doesn't mean that any man should be a mother. It doesn't work. But women should have an active and vibrant role in the church. Should absolutely go far beyond children's ministry. It should. We, we, I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm, I'm good with and even encourage. If there's a lady who has something to share, share it. I mean, don't interrupt the sermon or whatever, but if you've got something to share, well, do you need a place? We'll give you the place to share it. If you're called as a lady to teach the Bible, teach the Bible. Get a Bible study going. Do something with it. I think that's awesome. And I could continue going on. Hopefully you get the point. There's only one job, and that's my job. A ruling and or teaching elder that the Bible says is for men. But besides that, women should and can do everything else because, man, you're probably going to do it better than me anyway. If you'd like to talk about this, I will gladly talk with you about it. But I'm already only 30 seconds left until the sermon's no longer good. So our conclusion. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, it says this. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I've said it many times, because the word has told us many times that if you are alive, God has a purpose for you. We are all called to serve, and yes, our calling and our role will often look different. Even our place of ministry may look different, but it doesn't change that we are all called in some way, shape, or form to ministry. We, we know a guy, and a lot of you probably know him, I'm just not going to mention his name since we're online, uh, who was diagnosed with cancer uh, a few months back. Had to go to Springs for treatment five days a week. And we've seen him multiple times over the last couple months while he's been doing this. He's almost done two more weeks. We praise God. And he has had the opportunity to share the gospel with more people, to pray with more people, right, in a hospital. And somebody might say, well, do you think God gave him cancer so he would be able to minister to those people? I'm not saying God gave him cancer. I'm saying God's using it. Because he can. He can do anything. But we're all called to some sort of ministry. Male, female, tall, short, fat, smart, dumb, I don't care. Right? We clearly know that God calls dumb people to be pastors. Thank you for the few chuckles I got out of that. So, a couple questions. Have you responded to those who have brought you glad tidings of the kingdom of God? As always, and I have to say it, and I will say it until the day I stop breathing, you need Jesus. And if you're here, or you're online, or you're listening to this recording some other time, and you don't know Christ as Savior, you need to know 
Christ as Savior, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Two, no one should be serving alone. So if you're involved in some ministry that you're doing alone, ask for help. And if you know of somebody who is involved in some sort of ministry, ask yourself how you can support them. Three, everyone is called to ministry. And my question is, where? there's a question mark on that. Not supposed to be a question mark there. My que- it's supposed to be a period. My, my question is, where are you serving? Where are you serving? Now, if you don't know where you're called to or what, what steps then are you taking to discover it, if you need help, ask me. I'll gladly help you or ask somebody else. Maybe it's a season of a transition between one thing and another. Maybe it's a season where God's asking you to step into something new. Maybe it's a season where God's asking you to revisit something old. I don't know. That's between you and him. What I do know is we are all called to serve. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your great grace. I thank you, God, that you love us so much that you've given us your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. I thank you that you love us so much that you have called and gifted each of us to a person, men and women, young or old. You have a plan and a purpose for all of us. I pray, Father, that you would give us the heart of service. I pray that, Father, you would give us a heart to love and to support and to encourage one another to hold one another up and to build one another up. I pray that you would give us the ability to do that by the power of your spirit and the guidance of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.